Good morning, Christ Prez. You know, I've spent a lot of my life seeking greatness and strength. It started early. Uh, when I was young, in elementary school and middle school, I realized that I could be a good, if not great, athlete with practice. And so I got really involved in sports, uh, track, football, tennis. Tennis was an especially big deal at my Texas high school. Our varsity team regularly won the state championship, and so competition to play on that team was fierce. I spent countless hours out on the tennis courts in the Texas heat practicing my serve, taking lessons from private coaches, trying to improve my game. I'm not even sure that I enjoyed it that much, but I enjoyed the thought of being a state champion. Later in high school and college, I sought greatness and strength and recognition through academic achievement. I'm reasonably intelligent and I've always been good at school, so this was an area where I felt like I could excel. When it was time to choose a seminary, I went to Princeton for several reasons, but one was the name recognition. The seminary uh, is an entirely different institution from the university, but when people asked where I went, I'd be able to say Princeton, and then I could kind of mumble the seminary part, and I figured that would sound pretty impressive. Once I started to get clear that God was calling me to pastoral ministry, I, I assumed that I'd go to a big church and start off as an associate and focus on some narrow aspect of ministry I could do really well while learning how to lead a church, and then eventually move on to be the senior pastor at another large church. This was the model I'd seen growing up in a big steeple church in San Antonio, and it was a trajectory that fit with my notions of success and strength. I imagined preaching weekly for hundreds, maybe thousands of people, because I knew that I would have so many really important things to say. Well, even my relationships to some extent were built based on what I thought would make me stronger. You know, I fell in love with Libby and eventually asked her to marry me for a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons is that uh, she's just a remarkable woman who made me better, made me stronger and maybe made me appear to be more put together than I really am. She made me look good. Throughout my life, I've had an ongoing arm wrestling uh, competition with my younger brother, David. This competition motivated us both to try to stay physically strong. Growing up, I always won, even when David was objectively stronger than I was. Well, I could go on and on with other examples, but the point is that seeking strength and greatness has been a big part of my story. And I wonder about your story. And I wonder what examples you could share of seeking greatness by being first, by winning, by finding power through strength. Today, we're wrapping up our series in 2 Corinthians. Remember that one of the main issues between Paul and the Corinthian Christians was around questions of power and status and success and prestige. Tim Savage writes this, In Corinth, perhaps more than anywhere else, social ascent was the goal, boasting and self-display the means, personal power and glory the reward. Close quote. See, this was a culture that was all about appearances and success. Remember, Paul started the Corinthian church, but since his first time with them, other apostles had come along preaching a different gospel that was damaging the congregation. Reading between the lines, it looks like it was a gospel that placed a premium on ecstatic, glorious experiences rather than on humble, self-giving love. Paul calls them super apostles. 
And by appearances, they just had much more going on for them than Paul did for himself. I mean, they knew how to talk themselves up. They had impressive credentials, long resumes. Plus, they were more put together. They were better communicators, better looking, better dressed, flashier, not just apostles, super apostles, but also for that reason, false apostles. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that this is not the way of the gospel. He wants them to remember how the kingdom of God that's breaking in operates according to entirely different values than do the systems of the world. And so Paul boasts. It's a strange tactic. As Tommy pointed out last week, it's a little awkward. We can tell that Paul feels a little awkward by the way he goes about it. In chapter 11, which includes the passage Tommy led us through last week, it's like Paul enters into the game that the super apostles are playing, and he shows that he could win that game if he wanted to. The super apostles are Jewish Bible experts. So is Paul. They know about Jesus. Well, so does Paul. I mean, the risen Jesus actually appeared to him. Are they martial artists? Paul is Bruce Lee. Is basketball the game? Paul is Michael Jordan. Oh, they're drummers? Paul is Buddy Rich. See, on one hand, Paul is saying, look, I could play this boasting game all day and I could win. But at the same time, he's showing the Corinthians and us that that whole game of boasting and strengths and accomplishments is entirely misguided. It's inconsistent with the good news about Jesus. It contradicts the values of God's kingdom. The way Paul gets at this is by talking about an experience of being brought high, and he talks about an experience of being brought low. And we'll talk more about his experience of being brought high, caught up into the third heaven in a minute. The experience of being brought low is what Paul emphasizes. Here's what he writes. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We can only speculate and guess about what the thorn is, but, but it's probably better not to speculate, not to guess. I mean, it might be a gift, in other words, that we don't know what it is, because it allows us to think about, you know, all the different kinds of thorns we might have in our own lives. Whatever it was, it made Paul feel weak, inadequate. It reminded him of his frailty. It kept him pinned down in a way, tethered to the ground, it kept him humble. He heard the Lord say, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Greek tense of the verb implies that the Lord kept speaking this to Paul. Paul kept hearing the Lord say, my grace is enough. Later, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's such a paradoxical thing to say, and it's, it's a hard teaching to accept. I mean, one of the things that makes it hard to accept is that when we're weak, uh, we don't feel strong. We feel weak. Uh, it requires faith to trust that when we are weak, God is powerfully with us and working in our weakness. Because sometimes we're aware of how God is at work in it, but sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we can't discern it. Sometimes we don't feel God's nearness in our weakness. If we could always know it and feel it, then maybe we wouldn't be weak. We'd be strong. But Paul doesn't say, when I am weak, then I experience God's power and I feel strong. He says, God's power is made perfect in weakness. He says, when I am weak, somehow, paradoxically, that is when I am strong. 
It's like somehow God is powerfully at work in and through not strength, but weakness. This is hard. The temptation is to reject it. The temptation is always to find power through strength instead. The temptation is to reject weakness, which might mean rejecting Jesus Christ. My freshman year of high school, I was sitting on my bed one evening and I noticed that my right leg was significantly smaller than my left one. My parents took me to the doctor and x-rays revealed that there was something wrong with my right knee. Part of the bone was deteriorating. And so for who knows how long, I must have been favoring that leg. And as a result, I was losing a lot of muscle mass. I ended up having several surgeries on my knee during my ninth and 10th grade years. And these effectively took me out of all sports. At one point I was told by my physical therapist that I might never be able to run again. I was crushed. I mean, no more running track, no more playing tennis. The varsity team would go on to win the state championship, but I wouldn't be on it. I felt extremely weak and vulnerable. I was brought low. For a while, I felt depressed and confused and angry as I came to terms with the fact that my high school years just weren't going to look like what I wanted them to look like. And in the midst of all that, the Lord met me in my weakness, and I experienced his grace. I experienced it through the love and support of friends and family. I experienced it as I was uh, forced to slow down and to be still. I experienced it as he showed me that my identity needed a much more secure foundation than my physical abilities and well-being. His grace sustained me through that hard season of disappointment and pain. My right leg is still smaller than my left one. I'm 42 years old and I have arthritis in my knee uh, just because that's what happens to joints 25 years or so after major surgeries. Is it a messenger from Satan? Maybe so. I mean, it's a regular little reminder to me that our world is broken and that God's healing purposes are opposed by an enemy. But it's also a regular reminder to me of God's power in my weakness. I used to pray for God to heal my knee. I prayed that a lot. And the truth is I'd still welcome his healing. But now I just give thanks for my skimpy leg. This is one of the ways, family, we might experience God's power in our weakness, in hardship and in suffering. You know, some of you I know are suffering intensely right now. Uh, Some of you suffer chronically. Like you're, you're just always aware of your weakness and frailty. Maybe you can see how God's power is at work in your weakness, and maybe you can't. But will you trust that he is with you and for you in your weakness? My last year of seminary, Libby's and my still young marriage was hanging on by a thread. Somehow in just a few short years, we had drifted apart from each other In different ways, we had both broken our promises to one another. We had failed to love each other well, and we were confronted by our own failures and sin and selfishness in our relationship. We we both wanted our marriage to work, but we felt utterly incapable of fixing it. And God's power was made perfect in our weakness. Uh, People who loved us came alongside us to help, 
and we were connected with a counselor who created space for us to be honest and vulnerable with each other in ways that we just hadn't been before. We learned to drop our defenses. We learned to speak openly and honestly with each other. And this was so healing. A trip to Italy, on which we entirely exhausted all the funds in our checking account, also helped. Well, that was a long time ago. We celebrated 19 years of marriage this year. And our marriage still has all kinds of ups and downs, but it's so much stronger now because of God's faithfulness to us in that long season of weakness. This is another way we might experience God's power in our weakness family, just in our relationships with each other. You know, paradoxically, Libby's and my relationship was strengthened by becoming weak and vulnerable with one another. We opened ourselves up, which felt kind of risky, but that enabled us to experience a deeper measure of God's unconditional love for us and through us for one another. David Benner writes this, quote, Genuine transformation requires vulnerability. It is not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It's the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. You know, that's something that I'm still trying to learn and trust. The fact that we are loved unconditionally is just that. It's a fact. But you can hear it and you can shrug your shoulders at it. You'll never experience it in power until you open up about your weakness, your failings, your sin, your suffering. It's like you'll only know unconditional love to the extent that it's tested. You have to come out of hiding and allow yourself to be loved. Libby and I had our first real taste of that with each other three years into our marriage. We found, in, we found strength then in weakness. On my 40th birthday, my brother David flew out for a surprise visit. And of course, we had to throw down an arm wrestle. And he beat me for the first time ever after, uh, gosh, you know, 30 something years of arm wrestling. He beat me. Now, I just assumed that this was God's power being perfected in his weakness. Without the power of God, I'm, I'm just not sure how he could have pulled that off. And what about my grand plans for pastoral greatness? Some of you know the story. Uh, Libby and I met Arthur Reppert, and then we met some of you. And after a lot of laughter and prayer and good food at the Wibberleys, you all called me to be your pastor. And the truth is, I felt weak from day one, utterly out of my depth. I was 28 years old and really didn't know anything about how to be a pastor. And in my weakness, you all have been God's grace to me. You've been patient with me, you've been prayerful for me, and you have taught me uh, the past 15 years in ways I'm certain I wouldn't have learned in another context, certainly not as the lead pastor of some large church, what it looks like to follow the humble way of Jesus, doing small things with great love. You've been weak and you've been okay with being weak because you know it's not about you. And you've allowed me to be weak because you know it's not about me either. And because it's not about me, enough about me. I wonder what Paul saw in that vision. You know, he says that he was taken up to the third heaven. 
in in biblical cosmology, heaven had three parts. The first heaven is like the atmosphere around the earth. The second heaven is the place above that where all the stars are. And the third heaven is where God dwells. And so Paul is saying that he was caught up to the very dwelling place of God, God's heavenly throne room. He's so coy about this. He doesn't even say it was him. He refers to himself in the third person. He doesn't want to draw attention to it and make too much of this extraordinary spiritual revelation he had. He doesn't want to highlight that he was lifted up. Instead, he wants to highlight the thorn that pinned him to the ground. He says that what he heard in the third heaven cannot be told. He says man cannot utter it. Well, what a missed opportunity, Paul. He could have written a bestseller and made millions. But he doesn't write the book. He doesn't tell us what he saw or what he heard. But maybe he's been showing us what he saw and heard all along. Maybe the truth of his vision is seen in the cross-shaped life he lives. Maybe the power of the vision is made known in the weakness of his suffering. You know, Paul was all set up to live a comfortable life as a Pharisee. But remember the story, one day Jesus appeared to him in glory and knocked him off his horse and claimed his life. He had a powerful, glorious encounter with the risen Lord. But what I wonder is this, like, what if that had been the only experience of Jesus that Paul had? What if Paul's experience of Jesus was only of the strong Jesus who shows up and knocks people off their horses? Paul knew about the cross. The cross was one of the reasons Paul rejected Jesus in the first place. I mean, he couldn't believe in a Messiah that would suffer and die. But Paul wasn't among Jesus' first disciples. He wasn't there when Jesus was betrayed and abandoned and beaten. He wasn't there when not just one thorn, but a crown of thorns was pushed down onto Jesus' head. He wasn't there when Jesus was pinned down to the cross. He never saw Jesus in his weakness. If all we have is the Jesus who knocks people off horses' vision, I wonder if we ever get the Paul who boasts in his weakness. I wonder if we ever get the Paul who can say, when I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder if we ever get the Paul who really trusts that God's power is made perfect in weakness. I tend to think probably not. And so I wonder about this second vision, this being caught up to the third heaven, to the very throne room of God, I assume that Paul needed to see and hear whatever he saw and heard, but what was it? He doesn't tell us. John does. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You remember this, behold the lion and it's a little lamb, it's neck slit, it's wool matted with blood. This is at the heart of all reality family. This is in the center of the throne room of God, the lion who is the lamb, not raw power, 
but humble, sacrificial love. Not strength and strength, but strength and weakness. What did Paul see and hear? He doesn't tell us. And so we'll never know the details, but we can trust that what he saw in one way or another was this person, Jesus Christ, this gloriously humble God, this humble, glorious God of self-giving love. And I think we can trust that he saw Jesus not in his knock-you-off-your-horse strength, but in his wounded vulnerability. In other words, I think we can trust that what he saw was the reality of the cross and all its powerful weakness. Family, God's power is made perfect in weakness. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Whether or not you can feel it or sense it or discern it. But even more, don't you see, his power is made perfect in his weakness. This is who he is. This is how he rescues the world. By becoming small, weak, and vulnerable. By accepting the thorn by embracing the cross, by being pinned down, by giving his life. Where are you weak? Press into that. This is how the kingdom comes. His grace is enough. Believe the gospel in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.